Amen. We serve a faithful God. Amen. Yes. And I want to just share a little bit of his faithfulness. Um, can you put up that slide from Guinea-Bissau? I don't know how well you, yeah, yeah, you can see that. Okay. Um, 10 years ago, uh, around that, I can't remember exactly. I went to Guinea-Bissau. It's a little tiny nation in West Africa, very, very impoverished, one of the lowest per capita incomes in the world. And um, I went with Spirit of Martyrdom, and we um, met a man, John, and his wife, Rachel, who he was a truck driver, and he retired. And after his retired from being a truck driver, he said, I need to go to the third world into a Muslim country where there's no gospel proclaimed and start a church. So he did. He went to a, a city called Gabu, which is way up inside Guinea-Bissau, and he started discipling some young men, and um, they decided they needed a radio station to transmit the gospel, because Guinea-Bissau is kind of, uh, uh, Africa, the Horn of Africa, is, or the, the, I'm sorry, the West Africa kind of goes out into the Atlantic Ocean, and Guinea-Bissau is kind of right here, sticks in, and Gabu's way up in the inside West Africa. So if they could put a big radio station there, it could broadcast to over a million unreached Muslims and the villages in that whole area. And so Qualcomm gave them the, the radio equipment for a, a very powerful station. And then they just needed the tower and the generator. So Wayside said, we'll provide the generator. As big as a full-size truck, um, it was a little pricey, but it, that's how much power it needed to put that much output. So we had the generator shipped there. They put up the tower, and for the last 10 years, they've been broadcasting throughout all the, it's the biggest radio station in the nation, and it broadcasts about hygiene and how to plant, how to har when to plant, when to harvest, what plants work well, but also the gospel in the local languages. Um, because of these young pastors that were raised up and from this work by this retired truck driver. So they've started churches throughout all these villages. Well, just recently, an evangelist went to Guinea-Bissau, went to the capital, and did a crusade. And somewhere between 40 and 70,000 people out of the t total population of 2 million came to the crusade. And they talked about how some people even came, heard from the radio station from the islands off the coast out in the Atlantic, sailed their boats in to be at this crusade. And at least they have a record of confirmed decisions of 5,700 confirmed decisions. Now these are all Muslims coming to Christ. But the wonderful thing is you had a part because you made it possible for the seed to be sown for the last 10 years throughout that nation. And now the harvest is being reaped. After they did the crusade here, they went up into that city, Gabu, where we were, and did another crusade there. Thousands more came to Christ. And young people from those crusades went out into the rural villages and started sharing gospel in, in rural villages. So I, I just had to share, you know, what God, that what part you had in 
God making this incredible harvest come about. Tens of thousands of Muslims coming to Christ. It's just a, an amazing thing. It's miraculous. It's all God. So yeah, praise God. Amen. And uh, before I begin the sermon, I have to say happy anniversary to my wife. 47 years. Yeah. If I thought I'd be married for 47 years. <laughs> my goodness, I'm getting old. <laughs> Amen. And, and welcome to our guests that are with us. Thank you for coming to worship the Lord with us. We pray that you're blessed, that the Holy Spirit speaks to you and all of us through his word. In fact, let's pray that right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for each one that's here. And we invite you through your word and through the power of the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts from the word, to convict us of sin, to instruct us in righteousness, to draw us closer to yourself. So, Lord, we pray you be powerfully through this message to move in our hearts and our minds and make us more like you. And, Lord, I want to lift up the people of Morocco who suffered a devastating earthquake. Lord, be with those who are helping, especially with those Christian organizations that are on the way there right now to help and, and be the arms and feet of Jesus and showing them your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This morning we are in James. If you're a guest with us, we just work our way through a scripture one book at a time and you happen to join us in the book of James. And this morning we're in James chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. James chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with us as I read this passage? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Don't be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Amen. This is God's word. He can be seated. Just seeing if we have any kids. Okay. So um, this chapter, James chapter 1, begins by telling us that we should greet trials joyfully because we know that they test our faith and they help us to mature. And we're encouraged to ask for wisdom that God gives generously to all who ask. But then we were warned not to doubt because God answers the prayer of faith. And the humble are to rejoice in their exaltation and the rich in their humble service. 
as these are signs of the kingdom of God, which is so different from this world. And then we get to our verse for today. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You know, blessed is sometimes translated as happy or fortunate. And we usually use it very casually, like, um, oh, I had a, a blessed day today, meaning it was a good day. But in many cases in Scripture, the word points to future glory when Christ returns, and that's the case in this particular passage. That kind of blessed is beyond our ability to imagine. If I were to try to translate it into modern vernacular, it would be something like, oh, such a very great future awaits those who persevere through their trials. The scriptures took the Greek word and translated blessed and, and made it even more meaningful than it was used in the Greek culture. The Greeks used it kind of as in a sense of a person who, who um, their daily needs were so met that they didn't have to worry about their food or clothing. That was what, how the Greeks would refer to blessed. But Christians took it and added, the Jews took it and added it even a greater emphasis to it. The Bible takes the word from the physical and temporal plane to a spiritual eternal condition. And we can see that that's the case here because the result is receiving the crown of life. Now, I don't know if I can really define what the crown of life is. Uh, Jesus said we, we receive from him eternal life when he forgives us of our sins. But I, I know it includes eternal life in the presence of our Savior in his glory. And that's truly blessed beyond our present comprehension but it seems like it's something even more than that. Steadfast is uh, the verb form of a Greek word we saw before, hupomeno, uh, and uh, the noun we saw before uh, in verse four, which is hupomene. It's to bear up under a burden until the destination is reached or the goal is accomplished. In this case, it's to endure, to hold up, under the trials of life until we see our Savior. And in connection with the previous verses, it means to maintain our faith in God and his goodness through trying circumstances of life. I, I came across, uh, I, I actually, I, there's a friend of mine who pastors in Florida and he happened to put this on his uh, webpage today and I, I thought it was perfectly fit with this thought here. It's, it's a quote from J.I. Packer. He wrote, God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weaknesses deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. The harder we lean, the stronger we grow spiritually, even while our bodies waste away. To live with your thorn uncomplainingly, that is sweet 
patient and free in heart to help others, even though every day you feel weak. That's true sanctification. It's true healing for the spirit. It's the supreme victory of grace. The one who gives, that's the end of the quote, the one who gives in to doubt has failed to endure and he can't expect a reward, the previous passage says. The exaltation of the lowly and the humbling of the rich is to receive trials with faith, recognizing how brief our lives are and the glory that lies ahead. It's to stand firm on the 7,000 plus promises in God's word. The reward of the crown of life awaits all those who love God and endure in their faith. That's a promise of God. And we can look forward to certainty to it if we remain steadfast. Jesus told the church in Smyrna in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Same message. He warned the church of Philadelphia, Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. And Paul told the Corinthians that unlike the athletes of that day that received a, a fading wreath as a crown, we are laboring for an imperishable crown. Peter told the elders that when the chief shepherd appears, they would receive a crown of glory. So just what is this crown of life? Now, I don't think we can comprehend it now. Jesus said he is the life. To know him is eternal life. It's for all who are in heaven because Jesus will help us persevere to the end. Is it the glory Adam and Eve were clothed with in the fall? I don't know the answer, but I know that any kind of imperishable crown must be on anything we could hope for in this world. Whenever you dream of obtaining, whatever you dream of obtaining in this life is nothing compared to what this promise is about, the crown of life. Jesus gave us salvation and we could all say that's more than enough. That alone is more than enough. But he is a generous God who rewards faithfulness with his very own joy. And we all long to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. How joyful is Jesus? Well, that's the ultimate joy. Hold fast, brothers and sisters, because that reward is for all who love him. It's promised to those who love him. And if you love him, you'll want to remain faithful to him. Verse 13. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. What might keep us from remaining steadfast under trial? It's temptations. And temptations are lying promises. While Jesus promises the crown of life, temptation promises brief satisfaction. You may think you have satisfaction from this world for a fleeting moment, but then it's gone. And you need it again, and a little more, and then you want it again, and a little more. And it always takes a little more to find that same kind of satisfaction you had before. So James cautions us to realize that temptations do not come from God. 
God is holy. God is not tempted by, because godliness is a descriptive word and that we use to describe his very own nature. Evil is the opposite of his nature. That which is a holy abhors evil. And as his children, we should also. Our all-knowing God cannot fit, fall for the lie that temptations present. He knows what results in evil, and he despises it in all its forms. He not only does not tempt us, but he delivers us from evil, as the Lord's Prayer says. We should never say God is tempting us. He does test us to strengthen us, but temptation comes out of our own desires, out of our fallen nature. God does not tempt, but he does test us. In fact, when tempted by our desires, he always provides a way of escape. Sin is this self-centered virus in our soul that we inherited from Adam. And because we were so severely infected, we have to put our old nature to death and be raised a new person in Christ to be born again. But we all find that that old zombie that was our six, sin-sick soul keeps trying to resurrect itself. You know, we've got a lot of zombie movies out there. If you watch zombie movies, just think of, that's my old nature. Coming back from the dead. That's not something God causes. It's the sin virus trying to infect our new nature and overtake it. And the antibody is our love for God and the life of the Holy Spirit within us. Jesus has freed us from our enslavement to sin. We can say no. We could not even recognize sin before we came to Christ, but now in him we see things that before we thought were perfectly fine and suddenly now we realize are ungodly and harmful to our souls. He gives us his godly perspective and that cuts through the lies of temptation. And now we know where sin would lead us, which is to death, as we see in the following verses. Verse 14, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. We must take hold of this truth if we're to remain steadfast and receive the crown of life. Our temptations come from the ungodly desires of our old nature. And don't use the old justifications you used before you were born again. You know, before we were born again, our conscience would say, you know, that's not good. And we start to reason in our mind, make excuses in our mind. Well, it's okay because, and we figure out some way to justify it. Now that we're born again, we have to recognize that and stop justifying. We are lured and enticed by our own desires and our conscience convicted us. So we made those excuses in our minds, justifying our behavior. And as our culture turns away from biblical truth, our education system and authorities are making those excuses that we used to make, it, it makes it sound like it's the right thing. Right becomes wrong, wrong becomes right in our minds, but when you dig down into their logic, it's usually contradictory and often based on what turns out to be lies. 
The scripture here said lured. And in fact, the Greeks used this as a fishing term. It calls to mind that little, those little devices that you throw out into the water to attract fish. I have a box full of fishing lures. And there's a different lure for different fish at different times of the year. Sometimes they're after this bait, sometimes after another. So you need to know which lure there is going to attract them at that particular time. The lure imitates that kind of creature, but it has hooks attached. The lures of our old desires are promising temporary satisfaction that we once indulge in and entices us to bite. And our old nature stirs that desire and reminds us of the temporary thrill we experienced it, but it never reminds us of the consequences, right? Spiritual eyes can see the hooks and realize the lure will drag us to somewhere we don't want to go. That Greek word for lured literally means to be dragged off. When I catch a big fish big enough for dinner on a lure, I drag it ashore, I whack it over the head, I gut it, I bring it home, and I eat it. And that's what sin will do to us if we bite. Keep that picture in your mind the next time you are lured by temptation. Recognize the things that entice you. You know it's different for every one of us. But there are three general categories of temptations given to us in Scripture. Lust, which means that a desire for something, an inordinate desire for something, can be anything. Greed and pride. Putting anything in this world above Jesus is idolatry, which Paul calls covetousness in Colossians 3.5. If you're uncertain about an expression or an action, you know, you're trying to decide, should I do this? Should I not do this? Does God want me to do this? Does God not want me to do this? Wait until you discern if it's good or evil. If it's deceptive in any way, or if it's self-exalting, those indicate that it's probably evil. If it's helpful, sacrificial, done out of love for the Lord and mankind, it's probably good. But when in doubt, wait. You don't want the results in the next verse. Verse 13, Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. James gives us a very vivid metaphor. He says that desire conceives, and I believe he chose this metaphor because of the similarity to conception and gestation. You know, the act of conception is not always with the intention of pregnancy. In other words, when we act on our lusts, whatever they may be, the consequences aren't always something we considered. There's a long gestation period where we carefully nurture what's been conceived. That's contemplation. That's going over it in our mind, thinking about the pleasure it might give us. And then when it is finally born, it is revealed to be sin. 
Ungodly desires, when acted on, result in conceiving what is in time revealed to be sin. And that's why we must carefully guard our thought life. We cannot help the thoughts that pass through our minds. They're often fiery darts of the evil one. You know, that's one way to, you know, if, you, if you're wondering, is there a really spiritual world? Look at your thoughts very carefully. And sometimes you'll go, why in the world did I think of that? Or is it just me? Those fiery darts mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 that we're supposed to quench with the shield of faith. But we can refuse. We can refuse to meditate on those thoughts. With that shield of faith, we can extinguish them. We can immediately recognize them as lures with hooks and reject them. The mindset that we have towards those temptations must change from pleasure to destruction, especially if you recognize your particular weakness, the lure that he most has commonly caught you on before. You have to start changing your image of the result of following that, of biting that. We must realize that when sin grows up, it brings forth death. And that is not an exaggeration. Serial killers confess to starting out with pornography and then go on to rape and finally to murder. Drugs end up killing the user. Sin is like mistletoe on the oaks around my house. It takes more and more of their life and finally it kills the tree. You know, sometimes as I'm driving, I, I live up Oak Creek Canyon, and um, especially late at night, people become uh, uh, overly eager to get home and pass me on a blind curve. And I think, someday there's going to be a car coming in the other direction. Whatever form sin takes, the one who has cast that lure wants to drag you to himself and to be sure you die as a reprobate with a hardened heart. That's his way to fight God. You know, Satan knows he can't win, but his anger towards God who cast him out of heaven means he wants to take every soul with him he can because he knows God loves each and every one of us. Jesus declared that Satan has come to kill, steal, and destroy. But Jesus promises that crown of life to those who love him and endure. Satan rewards a life of sin with death, and it's more than physical death, just as the life promised to us is more than breathing, more than our heart beating. Satan cannot win, so he'll do everything he can to grieve God's heart because he knows God's heart is that none perish. That's why Satan is out to see as many as possible become hooked on those lures. But when we acknowledge that we have a hook in our mouth and we ask God for deliverance, he can cut that line. You know, sometimes I catch a fish and it's got a hook in its jaw with a little bit of line hanging out. We may have to live with that hook in our mouth, the consequence of sin, but we're free from that steady pull to destruction. 
will find our flesh desiring things that are sinful, but we have the power to not allow those desires to conceive. That's spiritual liberation. That's new life. Even the secular world, when dealing with addicts, teaches that the cycle of thoughts has to be broken. And they use smelling salts. You know, um, they encourage the person who's trying to get counseling, usually because the court ordered it, and they can't seem to break the habit of following that particular lure that the enemy throws out there, whether whatever the lure may be. And so they teach them to recognize that how that thought begins and how they start to dream about it and concentrate on it, meditate on it, and that's when you have to stop the thought pattern. And in the world, in the secular world, they use smelling salts because it's such a to the brain. It just jars your thoughts and breaks the thought cycle and allows them to start their thoughts in a different direction. Well, we have our own smelling salts. It's the word of God, right? You memorize the scripture that addresses that particular lure that you have. Whatever it is, memorize a scripture and as soon as you see your thoughts going in that cycle, you quote that scripture to yourself. And it's that shock to the brain that helps your mind turn away from the destructiveness that that lure would pull you to. We find our flesh always desiring things that are sinful, that old nature, that zombie. But we have the power to not allow those desires to conceive. Breaking that pattern can just mean move on to another evil pattern unless we yield to the life of the Spirit and have our desires transformed. The best motive for resisting temptation is to love God, to love Him with greater power and greater passion than your love for that sin. Paul commands us to do this in Colossians 3, 5. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in, your, in, in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He tells us these earthly desires that are sinful are actually idolatry because we look at them for satisfaction and fulfillment instead of looking to the Lord, our Savior. That's what an idol is putting something above God, prioritizing it above God. Our mindset then should be that the lure that catches our eyes is an idol that wants to take our worship from God and destroy us. Reject that at your own peril. We're in a cosmic war, whether we like it or not. You may, th may think that your weakness is not so bad as these obvious ones, that I've mentioned, you go, oh, I don't do that. But all sin is just as deadly. A critical spirit, that's the result of pride, ends in the same destruction. We turn food into an idol, entertainment, wealth, health, or anything that becomes more important to us than God and his will for our lives. You were made for a purpose. And God wants to be glorified in your life. 
That's why the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. God spoke that to Moses and included mind because he knows that's where Satan turns the heart. If our mind is tricked into those age-old doubts like, did God really say? The mind starts to chase the lure and our actions will soon follow. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. James warns us, beloved brothers, to not be deceived. The deception he's warning of is that of thinking that things of the world can satisfy your soul. Though he was a part of Jesus' earthly family, James, Jesus' half-brother, Jesus' declaration that once may have made him angry now meant so much to him. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Several times in Jesus' teaching on the end times, he warns us not to be deceived. In the discourse uh, of the end time, Jesus was warning about being led astray by false messiahs and false prophets who do signs and wonders. James, however, is warning us not to be deceived by our desires and thoughts. We can talk ourselves into believing something in this world can fill that void in our hearts. That thing that will drag us away may not be so evil in and of itself, but when we look to it, for satisfaction, to try to satisfy our soul with its evil, it becomes evil, and evil is deadly. Verse 17 is the mindset that we need to realize that every good and perfect gift is from God. And therefore, when we enjoy legitimate things of this life, of creation, that are good for us, we thank God for them instead of seeing them as a means to satisfy the soul. We see them as a momentary gift that came to us from a perfect God who loves us. Our gratitude and our praise is to God, not to the object. Did God give you a loving spouse? Thank God. Did you enjoy some time exploring the wonders of God's creation? Thank the giver, the creator of that creation. Was your food delicious? Who made your taste buds? Thank him, praise him. This kind of mindset turns our heart from the gift to the giver. It helps us enjoy God's gift without putting our hope in the gift. If we desire that which leads to death, where we can get, where can we get a heart that loves God and endure? It's from the giver of every perfect gift. James adds that God is the father of lights, and I believe by that he means he created the stars that we marvel at here in our dark sky city. Last night I just sat out on my deck, and there were clouds, but every once in a while they'd move, and you could see a cluster of stars. It's so peaceful. And now that with the, these new space telescopes, we can see what is distances that are beyond our comprehension and the wonders out there. He's the maker of heaven and earth. And he continues his description of the great giver by saying that 
With him, there's no variation or shadow due to change. In other words, we won't find God gives good things one day and then evil things the next. God is consistently good. We may interpret the test we're going through as an evil thing, but God is using it for good in our life. Therefore, it is a good gift. Perfection cannot change, or it would be imperfect. He will always have the same wonderful attributes of grace and mercy and steadfast love and justice and holiness and faithfulness. He gave his only son to save us and accepted his sacrifice in our place, and that will never change, thank God. He's light without any darkness at all, and the crown of life he has promised he will deliver. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. It was God's will that you were born again by the seed of his word. And it's like Jesus' parable of the sower. The sower sows the word and the word takes root in good ground. And James will tell us to receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. In verse 21, God prepared the soil of our hearts and then at the right time, the seed of the word was planted in that prepared soil and it came to life. Maybe it was a stranger who shared the gospel with you or maybe you heard it from your parents or a friend and it took root and you became the first fruits of his creatures. First fruits are in scripture are the ripe, the first ripe portion of grain or fruit or produce or firstborn of the herds. And it was always offered to God in recognition that everything came from God and that God would provide the rest. It was putting God first. When the word took root in our hearts, we became a new creation. And we were the first ripe fruit of a coming age when all will be transformed and the curse of sin lifted from the world. And we're already experiencing that new life within our hearts. We give ourselves as an offering to God in faith, knowing that he's good and the rest of the harvest will ripen in his time. And we saw some of that in that picture at the beginning. That not only means that our salvation is a work of God, but it also means that we are special to him. So let's review this rich passage briefly to try to remember the key points. James tells us who love the Lord that we have the promise of a crown of life if we endure the trials of life. We should never say God is tempting us because he is never tempted by evil. He doesn't tempt but he does test us. It's our evil desires that lure us into sin, and the result of sin is death. Do not let the enemy deceive you. God gives good and perfect gifts, and he never changes. He will always be the same perfect God. It was his will to give us spiritual birth by the word of truth that we might the beginning of a new creation special to him. Praise his holy name. Amen. Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song and then I'll give the benediction.